Australia Explained, keeping you on top of all things down under. In this episode of Australia Explained, we look back on the Whitlam dismissal, why it was important and why it's being discussed 45 years later. Hello everyone, my name is Tanya Ragusa. And I'm Vanessa De Grazia. And welcome to yet another episode of Australia Explained. We'd like to start by acknowledging that we're recording this podcast on the lands of the Rwandri people and pay our respects to their elders past, present and future. Now, today's episode is very conveniently timed, actually. <laughs> convenient. Today, convenient, not like I planned this three months ago. Uh, but today's episode marks the 45th anniversary of the 1975 dismissal, which, for all our listeners who aren't aware, was the first time that a Prime Minister had been sacked by a Governor-General. Yeah, this is definitely one of the most infamous stories of Australian politics, one of your favourite parts of history, but probably something most people haven't heard of, because I hadn't heard of it either. Yeah, I didn't really study it until I came out of high school. I think, I don't know, what do you get this perception that as a younger student, you thought Australian history was boring or like it didn't quite compare to European history or, or the types of history we're used to studying about like World War II and, and that sort of European perspective. Yeah, for sure. But Australian politics actually has lots of drama. <laughs> yeah, just actually like this one. one. Yeah, exactly. So are you ready? Let's start. Absolutely. Let's go. Okay, so firstly, as always, we've got to set the scene. So who was Gough Whitlam? So Gough Whitlam was the 21st Prime Minister of Australia and his Labour Party came to victory in 1972 after 23 consecutive years of coalition governance. So in a lot of ways, he represented a change, you know, symbolically because of a change in government, but also in a very tangible way his election campaign was literally the slogan it's time i guess that makes sense if you think about the period i mean the 70s was the counterculture decade you know the human rights movement was in full swing the second wave of feminism you know everything was really happening at that point and um goff's program for reforms changed australia to what we know it as today really yeah all those things that we associate with australia or things that we have come to take for granted um, I know some of our parents might have been used to free tertiary education, which is what Goff introduced. Can't relate. <laughs> Can't relate because they got rid of it, but that was actually Goff's uh, thing back in the 70s. He also established the basis of what is now Medicare, it used to be called Medibank, and that was free universal healthcare, which we all take for advantage today and we're all very grateful of in Australia. He did a lot for women's rights, so he introduced no-fault divorce, which meant that spouses could divorce their partners without any evidence of adultery or neglect or anything like that made it a lot easier for men uh, for women and men to leave abusive situations and he also established the first minister for women who was a woman um as well as did a lot of things for indigenous rights he was the first leader to very openly campaign for land rights and he was involved in the returning of traditional lands to first nations people I think it's really easy to hear all of that and paint him as like a sort of Australian martyr, but we can't forget that he was very, very controversial. He was often considered too socialist, so like too communist, which was not cool back in those days. (laughs) And I think probably if he ran today, he would still be too controversial. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he was the prime minister who removed 
um, God Save the Queen as the previous national anthem to what we have now Advance Australia Fair. So moving away from, I guess, that monarchical society. But he was also one of the first Western leaders to formally recognise the Communist Party of China uh, in 1973, which of course was very controversial at the time, given the Cold War tensions that were brewing. Um, but I guess this has helped us quite a bit today because China is now our strongest economic partnership. And just a brief explanation for any listeners that don't really know what the Cold War is. So it was a period after World War II where the US and the USSR, which is now Russia, were in this ideological battle between Western capitalism the way we live in Australia, example, and Soviet communism. So the um, idea of communism was expanding into Eastern Europe and Asia and was perceived as a major threat to democracy. So there was this big worldwide argument between countries and pretty much everyone was taking sides. So being friendly with the Chinese communists was a very big deal diplomatically. Yeah, and I think uh, in a way Whitlam sort of egged this on. It's rumoured that he called some of his his ministers comrades, which is a nod to the Bolshevik <laughs> Russian Revolution leader Vladimir Lenin. All in all, he was a very divisive character. It is well documented that he had a very strong personality, um, but the way he went down ultimately made him one of Australia's most renowned prime ministers. Okay, so where did it start going wrong for Goff? So we have to remember that the 1970s was a really turbulent time economically, and that directly coincided with Goff's governance. So in 1973, you had the oil crisis. So the Arab countries were the the world's biggest exporter of oil, and after some tensions with the United States, um, some of the Arab states put an embargo on oil exports to the US. So that means that they temporarily stopped shipping oil over there. Yeah, and of course, anything that happens to the US naturally affects the rest of the world. And so when you have a lack of supply of oil, that means uh, prices go through the roof and inflation skyrockets. It increased around 70% in price. So it's just important to remember that amongst the various scandals that are very specific to Whitlam's government, which we'll discuss now, Um, The economic side of things and I guess the downside of what was happening globally really exacerbated the tensions in Australia and really made people feel as though Whitlam was not a competent leader. So just a note to remember that things were bubbling up under the surface um, for a while before Goff was sacked. Okay, so going to the scandals that had a major part to play, firstly, let's talk about the ASIO raids. Yeah, so ACO stands for the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation. And what happened in 1973 is that the Attorney General of Australia, Lionel Murphy, led a a police raid on the Melbourne offices of ACO. And he claimed that ACO had some files relating to a Soviet Yugoslav leader, which was about, who was about to visit Australia, but they were hiding these files for some reason. But once again, against the Cold War tensions, we see more fear about communism sparking some debates about the Whitlam government. And just to add to the drama, ASIO is basically the Australian equivalent of the CIA. So view this whole story in like a big CIA drama movie kind of vibe. So they go in, they raid the offices and nothing is really found. So naturally, a lot of people are upset that Whitlam's attorney general led this raid. 
Yeah, and apparently Whitlam had no clue about the raid, but it was considered so silly that many people criticised his management of his own ministers. They thought it was ridiculous. Um, This also upset the CIA in the United States because they had intelligence officers in Australia at the time, and it was believed that Whitlam had attempted to shut them down. So there's this big conspiracy that the US government under Nixon and Kissinger had a role to play in this, especially as Whitlam seemed so pro-socialist, which they were totally against. Um, But there's no concrete evidence of this, and it's kind of like a fun little theory. Yeah, it's just a conspiracy theory that floats around. Apparently, there's some quotes from President Jimmy Carter who said that uh, the US will never again attempt to interfere in Australian diplomatic and democratic processes. So there was a little bit of an implication there that they may have intervened in the Whitlam dismissal, but no evidence once again. But one of perhaps the biggest scandals that happened was the loans affair. And due to the economic turmoil in Australia at the time, due to the oil crises and high prices of inflation, the government sought overseas loans to fund a lot of its development and infrastructure projects. Now, this was normal as long as it was approved by the Loan Council. Um, But a few of Whitlam's ministers, including Rex Connor, who was the Minister for Minerals and Energy, decided to seek a loan worth $4 billion US dollars, which was massive at the time, without the Loan Council's approval. And he decided to go through a Pakistani dealer called Tirath Kamlani, who would then cut a deal with some Arab financiers to provide the money to Australia, all with very high interest rates as well. So this situation was super, super sus because, firstly, The loan, as you said, was massive at the time, like an astronomical amount of money. Secondly, the loan was independent of the Loans Council and the Treasury. They were obviously just trying to keep it under wraps. Um, Thirdly, it was using Arab financiers right after the oil crisis. So there's been all this drama with these Arab countries and now they're sourcing a loan from over there. Same sus. And even worse, the loan never eventuated and Whitlam and his government copped a bunch of criticism. The Deputy Prime Minister at the time, Dr Jim Carnes, also had a knowledge of the loans affair, but he failed to reveal it. Rex Connor attempted to deny involvement until Kemlani, the Pakistani loan dealer, came on the record and literally signed a, statu- a statutory declaration confessing the undercover dealings. So just lots and lots of cover-ups here. Yeah, and the government was essentially exposed for knowing, but claiming they didn't know, and then Kamlani comes on the record and says, hey, I've got a stack deck. <laughs> um, so we really cannot underestimate the outrage that the loan affair caused because the impropriety and the incompetence of the Whitlam government was really emphasised. And Whitlam's speechwriter, Graham Freudenberg, stated that the only cost involved in the whole scandal was the cost of the reputation of the Whitlam government. So, now we get to 1975, and Malcolm Fraser is elected leader of the opposition. What happens next? So, it was actually quite easy for the opposition at this point in time to make really important decisions against the Labor Party because the Labor Party did not hold a majority of seats in the Senate. So even though they were the governing party of Australia, the Senate votes actually swung towards the coalition. And so this meant that Malcolm Fraser was able to pass a few motions and pass a few bills that would work directly against Whitlam. And so what did he do? 
he decided to stop the passing of what was called appropriation bills. And these bills are related to the federal budget. So they basically control the money supply in Australia to make sure that we can get money in, we can spend money and make sure that our transactions keep going. So by stopping these bills, it essentially meant that the money supply in Australia would stop and it would eventually dry up by November 30. So the government was going to run out of money. And Malcolm Fraser did this to put pressure on Whitlam to concede to an early election because Fraser knew at this point in time, after the economic crises, after all the scandals, Whitlam had such a poor reputation that he would not win a second term as Prime Minister. God, democracy is a sham sometimes. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) this is where the Governor-General, Sir John Kerr, comes in. So he was watching the situation very closely. He He was negotiating deals with both Fraser and Whitlam separately, but eventually decided to run with Fraser and move to dismiss Whitlam from office. Now, technically, it was somewhat constitutional to make the PM aware of his potential potential dismissal, but Kerr was frightened that Whitlam would then turn his back on him and try to get the Governor-General dismissed. So Kerr decided to dismiss the PM without any notice from the Queen, our head of state, under whom Kerr works for and represents. Yeah, and it was so shady how the whole thing went down uh, because on October 30, uh, Whitlam was having meetings with Sir John Kerr to solve the whole money supply issue and see how they can get um, the appropriation bills passed. But then on November 11th, he eventually decided to dismiss Whitlam in a very dramatic series of events. So Whitlam was actually unaware that whilst he was in the room at uh, Sir John Kerr's office getting dismissed, Fraser was actually in the room right next door to him waiting to be made caretaker prime minister in a few mere minutes. Um, Movie material, legit movie material. Movie material. And what Kerr then decided to do was dissolve both houses of parliament for election, meaning that every single minister and senator and representative in the house had to be re-elected. And this is why we sometimes call the dismissal the double dissolution. So after Whitlam's dismissal, he's on the steps of old parliament house crowded with people and media personalities and he's standing behind Kerr's press secretary who is reading out the dismissal notice to the media and then all of a sudden Whitlam comes to the mic and he says well may we say God save the Queen because nothing will save the Governor-General and you just hear this roar from the crowd it is just infamous it's infamous so savage I love it (laughs) But all this happened 45 years ago, and as savage as it is and interesting as it is, why has it made a return in 2020? So it sort of coming, it sort of started coming back into the public mind around three and a half years ago. So the National Archives of Australia in Canberra held around 1,200 pages of communication between the Governor-General, Sir John Kerr, and the Queen's private secretary in Buckingham Palace, Sir Martin Charteris. If anyone watches The Crown, you'll know who Charteris is. And these pages of communication were known as the Palace Letters because obviously they were sent to Buckingham Palace. And they were all sent between 1974 to 1977. So covering that really important time period leading up to the dismissal and afterwards as well. Now, what usually happens is that public 
Australian documents. So documents that are created by federal Commonwealth officials like politicians and the Governor-General are usually made public for available viewing after a period of 30 years. Obviously, just to allow a bit of time to pass for anyone who was involved and, you know, allow a bit of privacy. However, what happened with the palace letters is that they were mislabeled, and I say that in quotation marks, as private personal communications of Sir John Kerr's. And the National Archives were advised to release the letters only after a time period of 50 years and with the Queen's approval. So this meant you had these very important documents that would not have been released until at least 2027 because by the time the National Archives approved all the backlogs of applications that, you know, wanted access to these files, it probably would have been years and years past 2027. So just to clarify, no one confidently knew when exactly these files would be released. Yeah, that's right. And this is where Professor John Jenny Hocking comes to play. Jenny is a professor and historian at Monash University, and she's a very extensive biographer of Gough Whitlam. And she started a court battle back in 2016 to have these documents released. And she argued on the basis that these files were actually public Commonwealth records because they were written while Sir John Kerr was in his official role as Governor-General. And there was a bit of back and forth for many years because the National Archives and even ScoMo argued that the records should not be released. But earlier this year, 2020, great timing, the High Court ruled in favour of Professor Hocking and the documents were released in July. I don't think it's possible we ever have an episode without mentioning ScoMo. I think we just like saying his name, honestly, <laughs> like at this point. Well, anything that happens in 2020 is going to naturally yeah, very true, very know, true. evolve ScoMo. But back to the archives. So naturally, historians have flocked to see them and to see what happened, right? Yeah, every single file is available for public viewing at the National Archives, you know, hard copy. But there's, they're also all available online in PDF, PDF format for anyone to check out. So you can just go on the website and view them. And so we should be able to. These are primary documents at their finest. These are the documents that tell us what happened. Okay, now for the twist in the movie. What do the palace letters reveal? So three sort of important findings. The major one being that the Queen did not know a thing. So instead, oh, God bless her. Oh, God bless. Instead, her personal secretary, who was in communication with Sir, Sir John Kerr, Martin Charteris, was the one sending constitutional advice back and forth, and he even capitalised not informing the Queen to sort of save her reputation in a way. Two was that the palace, and when I say the palace, I mean Sir Martin Charteris, were very, very interested in the option of dismissal. And Martin even noted that although no Governor-General had ever used the constitutional powers to dismiss a Prime Minister, it doesn't mean that it was not an option. So he sort of was encouraging it a little bit. But also three was that Whitlam made some desperate attempts after he was dismissed to be reinstated. And at one point he called Buckingham Palace at 4am in the morning and asked to be put back in office. It's like someone that's been dumped, like calling at 4am, like, take me back. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> what are people saying about these palace letters? Like, why is this all important? Well, we can sort of break down the responses into three camps. So on one side, you have the people that maintain that Sir John Kerr 
was in his constitutional rights. He didn't do anything wrong. Um, on the other side, you have people like Jenny Hocking who say this was extremely unconstitutional and should not have occurred, particularly if Whitlam was never given any sort of warning that his leadership was being questioned. And this was something that was noted to Sir John Kerr during his decision-making process um, by a high court judge, na- judge named Sir Anthony Mason. He advised Kerr that if you are wanting to go through with a dismissal, you should warn Whitlam about it in advance for some sort of fairness and allow him the opportunity to, I guess, redeem himself. And this whole argument of Jenny Hocking and that it's extremely unconstitutional is underpinned by the fact that the palace letters reveal that the Queen had no role or no knowledge in the dismissal and has sort of in part fueled the Republican movement in Australia because the Queen played no vital role in the p- political doings of our country. Yeah, and just to quickly define like the, what the Republican movement is, you've probably heard the word Republican in regards to the US political party, but Republican, Republican actually simply means someone who believes in a democratic form of government that's headed by a president. So that differs from Australia, which is a constitutional monarchy headed by a parliament, but still essentially under the control of the Queen. So the Republican movement in Australia wants to separate the Commonwealth and be entirely self-governed and I gotta say after this episode I kind of agree with them yeah so you have I guess the traditional view that Kerr did nothing wrong you have the Republican view that the Queen needs to go because she serves no purpose and then you have this sort of camp of people in the middle who say well regardless of whether it was right or wrong to dismiss Whitlam there still remains this sort of grey area in the Constitution that both the Prime Minister and the Governor-General can move to dismiss each other. And there was a great article written by Will Partlett from the University of Melbourne Law School who labels it the race to the palace. And this basically poses the question that if there comes another time in history where the PM and the Governor-General are not getting along and they both approach Buckingham Palace wanting to dismiss each other, What happens next? You know, who makes the decision? How will the country cope if both the PM and the Governor-General are dismissed? So that's why we call it a constitutional crisis because it's sort of like this grey area that has never really been resolved. I think that will come to be important in the future, especially as the Queen passes and we get a new monarch. Things might change and powers might be harnessed in different ways. So it'll be really interesting in years to come um, how this talk of a republic and being a monarchy and all of this sort of stuff pans out. All right, and now it's time for our recommendations. If you're wanting to learn some more, Vanessa, what have you got for me today? In Australia Explained fashion, I'm going to do sweet and simple. Mine is the links to the palace letters. So you can check out all the history itself and make your own judgments about what went down. Yeah, definitely. I think it's so important that we have access to these documents. My recommendation is by far one of my most favorite podcasts ever. It is so... Apart from this one. (laughs) Apart from this one. It is so incredibly engaging. It is called The 11th by ABC Radio and it was headed by journalist Alex Mann. And he specifically breaks down the Whitlam dismissal in seven very intriguing episodes. But he also um, does it in a quite um, unconventional way. He interviews people that you wouldn't think um, 
played a ma- massive role in it and, and they actually did. For example, he interviews Ray Marden, who was a journalist at the time. He interviews Whitlam's first minister for women and his right-hand man, all, all these people who sort of build this story of how the dismissal happened. So definitely check that one out. All right, and that's it from us today. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed yet another historical episode. Let us know what you think. We're always interested to hear your thoughts. In the meantime, as always, follow us for more short, sweet and simple Aussie content on Instagram and TikTok at Australia Explained Pod. All the info is in the show notes for you to check out. See you next week. Bye. Bye.